Okay, so Purim is this uh, very, very special date full of extremes and full of opposites. Um, on the one hand, one might argue that Purim is of lesser stature than the other Yomim Toivin that we have during throughout the year, because Purim is only rabbinic. And if you compare Purim to, to uh, Pesach or Shavuos or Sukkot, these are Torah Yomim Toivin. And Purim is not. Purim is rabbinic, and Purim you can do malacha, and technically one could even go to work on Purim. It's not appropriate, but it's um, definitely a day that's permissible to do the regular activities that you would not be allowed to do on a Shabbos or a Yom Tov. So on that level, one might say Purim is only it's only a rabbinic Yom Tov. On the other hand, we know traditionally and halachically that the Simcha of Purim actually exceeds any other Simcha that we have throughout the entire year. So... Again, even though it is a rabbinic Yom Tov, but still, um, famously the halacha and Shulchan Aruch are drinking wine on Purim, which we don't have even on Simchas Torah, that type of a halacha. So we're talking about a day of tremendous Simcha. Um, but not only Simcha, and sometimes people, uh, Simcha is, a, is uh, sometimes uh, something that's misused or not necessarily, um, sometimes people look at it as just an uh, excuse to be wild, to be silly. And really, Purim is a tremendously powerful spiritual day. Um, Purim, the name Purim, is it's written that is connected with Yom Kippur. And in fact, the word Yom Kippurim is like is as if it's, Yom Kippur is like Purim. Like the, the real the real way Yom Kippur is said in the Torah is Yom Kippurim. So if you translate that, it's like that Yom Kippur is like Purim. And here it's written in the Svarim that a Yid has the ability on Purim. Through, um, through connecting to the energy of the day and through the simcha of the day to reach a level of kapara, of atonement like Yom Kippur. Um, or a different saying of the Rabbeim, it says, on Purim there's a special mitzvah of giving tzedakah. Right? We know there's a mitzvah of giving tzedakah every day of the year. But on Purim it's special. We have the concept of matanas lavyoinim, finding especially poor people and giving them tzedakah on Purim. And there's a beautiful line in halacha about Purim which is, Kol yad loy, which literally means whoever stretches out their hand, we give them on Purim. Whereas throughout the year, um, although we give tzedakah, but if someone stretches out their hand and they ask, so we have the right, so more than a right to ask to find out what they need and uh, to make sure that they're legit and so on. When it comes to Purim, all rules are off. Kol yad loy, anyone who's asking for tzedakah, we're meant to give them tzedakah on Purim. So it says in Sfarim, based on the idea that every mitzvah that Hashem tells us, He does Himself, He fulfills Himself, that we too have the power on Purim to request from Hashem. And just like Hashem tells us on Purim, that whoever stretches out their hand, we should give them, Hashem too is so much more accessible on Purim to give um, whatever, we're, whatever we ask, whatever we ask properly. And as in the story of Purim, that where Esther wasn't really supposed to come before the king, she didn't have permission to come before the king, and yet she went. And in that way, on Purim, even if we may not be fitting or, or uh, deserving of coming before the king being Hashem, so on Purim we have that ability to break through all barriers and connect to Hashem in a way that's really unparalleled throughout the entire year. So it's definitely a, a most tremendous and most powerful day spiritually and simcha-wise and tzedakah-wise and tefillah-wise and from all ends. And so much so that Purim has the unique distinction that it says that although all the Yom Tovim when Mashiach will come will stop being so special because 
they'll sort of be um, pale in the greatness of the times of Mashiach. So Pesach, Shavuah, Sukkot won't have that special celebratory nature when Mashiach comes because they'll, they'll be secondary. But Purim will never become less. From all the days in the year, the only day that we're told that is going to remain forever as a Yom Tev, as a great holiday for the Jewish people is Purim. And not just Purim, even the Megillah Esther. It says, the Rambam rules in Halacha, that all of the books of the Nevi'im we're going to stop using when Mashiach comes. It says, we'll have Chumash, the Chumash comes there, but the words of Shmuel and Yeshua, Shevtim, they will not be necessary in use after Mashiach comes, aside from one book, and that's Megillah Esther. Megillah Esther, says the Rambam, is like the Chamisha Chum Torah, like the five books of the Torah, and only that book will remain a sacred book and a used book even when Mashiach comes. So both the book of Esther and the Yom Tov of Esther. And interestingly, in the Gemara, Esther didn't even have an easy time getting her book in. You know, it's called Megillah's Esther. In Megillah of Esther, in the Gemara, she had to debate the Sanhedrin. Well, who wrote it? Mordechai. Esther and Mordechai. Mordechai. Esther and Mordechai. But it says that Esther wrote to the Sanhedrin, and she says, I want this Sefer to be written for the future. Kisvuni Lederis. And there's a whole back and forth in the Gemara, I'm not going to go into, where they, they were arguing that it's not appropriate because of ABC, and they had verses backing them up, and she was able to out-argue them, and she had verses backing her up, and she was able to win the argument, and then it was established as one of the 24 holy books of the uh, Tanakh. And ultimately, again, as Rambam rules halachically, that her book will outlive all the other books of Nevi'im, just like the five books of the Torah. Wow. So a little bit, we're going to talk about that a little t- tonight. What's so unique about Purim? Even even Talmud says. I mean, all these books are good. They're all going to be here. No one's getting rid of them. But the ones that are going to remain, retain their their fullest strength and fullest this, says Miguel Asesta. I'm sure we'll say, you know what? I don't know know the answer. (laughs) Wait till Mashiach comes, you'll know for sure. I think it's beautiful, though. I think it's beautiful. So, just to summarize, to summarize, how many unbelievable things do we just see, even in these just few minutes about Purim? Um, it's the happiest of days. Halachically, it's the happiest of days. It's a day of tzedakah, where we're able to, we're supposed to give tzedakah in a greater way than ever, and we're able to ask from Hashem in a greater way than ever. Um, it's a day of kapara, day of atonement. Yom Kippurim is connected to Yom Kippur. It's a day that will last forever as a Yom Tev. The book of Purim will last forever as a book in the Torah. So all of these are obviously unique specifically to Purim. Uh, even though, as I began, Purim is only a rabbinic yom. And nevertheless, it takes this level of tremendous precedence in, in Torah and in observance and in atonement and in Kedusha and in Simcha and so on and so forth. So, what's, so let's, let's try... And again, Purim, is, there's so much to talk about, but let's try to focus in on a couple of the primary points of Purim and see why is it so significant in so many ways. And in so many ways, not just significant, but the significance of Purim really outshines everything else that we have. Why? What is so special about Purim? So, there's another famous difference between Purim and all the other Yamim Tevim. And that is that the story of Purim is the least miraculous of all our stories. Right? You think about Pesach and the Ten Plagues and Kriyas Yamsu, if you think about Matantari, you think about Hanukkah, oil lighting for eight days. And the story of Purim is a story where there's no miracles. You really, you can read the Megillah backwards or forwards from beginning to end. There's nothing, not even one miraculous occurrence. It's a beautiful story. 
very interesting read. Um, but there's nothing miraculous. You know, there's a king, and he gets in the fight with his wife, and he executes her, and then he finds a new wife, and, and the new wife happens to have a cousin, and she, the cousin happens to overhear the, the you know, ministers that want to you know, kill the king, and she tells, he tells her, and she tells him, and it's written down in the Book of Memories, and then there's the bad guy, there's the villain, and he becomes big, and everything works out grandly and beautifully at the end of the story. But so much so is there no miracles in the book of Esther that, what am I going to say? Hashem's name isn't even mentioned. So why do we say Al-Hanisim though for something? Great question. Great question. So in Tanakh, uh, the books are all full of Hashem. All the books of Tanakh are talking about Hashem and Hashem did this and Hashem said this and Hashem did this and Hashem did that. And here we have this amazing um, story which creates or spawns this amazing Yom Tiv, and Hashem is in the uh, sidelines, or is in the back, backstage. Doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't really reveal himself in this story. So that's another unusual thing about Purim. So it's full of unusual things. So why is it? Why? So of course, and as was just pointed out, we say Al-Hanisim. We thank Hashem for the miracles of Purim because the Yid recognizes very clearly that whether Hashem um, performs miracles in a revealed way and splits a sea and does ten plagues, or Hashem is uh, behind the scenes, we recognize that everything comes from Hashem. And the fact that everything works out the way it works out, and the fact that um, Achshverosh happens to have Vashti killed, and happens to elect Esther as Queen Esther, and Esther happens to be related to Mordechai, and Mordechai happens to hear the story of Bixen and Seresh, and, and Haman happens to hate, and all the happens, 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 we know is not happens, but is the story of Hashem, and that's why we say this al But although we say it's al but still Purim remains different than all the other Yomim Tevim, because in Pesach, Hashem performed in a revealed way. And in Shavuos, Hashem performs in a revealed way. And in Sukkot, Hashem performs in a revealed way. And in Hanukkah, Hashem performs in a revealed way. Why is it, specifically by this Yom Tov, differently than all the others, that Hashem performs behind the scenes? Totally behind the scenes, totally dressed up, which is, by the way, one of the basic reasons why children dress up on Purim, because Hashem dressed up in the story, or conceals himself in the story of Purim, so that from here comes the minute of dressing up as well. Um, so why? Why is it that in Purim, Hashem gets more dressed up, so to speak, in the guise of nature, more than in every other Yom Tiv that we have? And the answer to that lies in yet another question. I'm not trying to be confusing. It's just that I'm good at it. Um, being confusing, that is. Um, and that lies in another question which is there's something else unique about Purim. I think by the end, by the time we're finished here, we'll have the quiz about how many unique things are there about Purim. But there's another unique thing to the story of Purim, which is that it was the single worst decree on Jewish people in history. Right? Now, we've had plenty of bad decrees. We've had plenty of tsars. But never was there a situation where there was one ruler who that ruler was ruling over all Kalal Yisrael throughout the entire world, and he decreed that they all be annihilated, chas in one day. Because basically by saying that, he didn't give us any, any way out. Because it's everywhere and it's one day. So it's not like one day we'll do that country, this country, so you can run from one country to the next country. So then it was a nace. Well, it was a decree, and the decree was annulled. So then 
but not in a miraculous way. It was annulled through a beautiful array of events that one could easy, one could argue and say, where was Hashem? It just happened to be that he married the right woman, and she happened to be Jewish, and happened to have a good cousin. And he had, you know, it's a story that, it wasn't supernatural. It wasn't super, nothing not natural occurred. It was Bidera Chateva. Okay? But, on the other hand, in the story of Hanukkah, there was never a decree of annihilation for the Jewish people. Um, even in, in Mitzrayim, there was no decree for the annihilation of the Jewish people. There never was. Um, during the destruction of the first base of Mikdash, second base of Mikdash, in later history, the Holocaust, the Inquisition, never was the entire Jewish nation jeopardized together on one day. Why? Why was there such a terrible decree? What did we do to be deserving of such a terrible decree? And this is a question that the Gemara discusses. And the most common answer given, mentioned in the Gemara and the Medrash, is because we went to Ahasuerus' party. Or to say the words of the Gemara, Shanehenu misuudasan shel oisai Russia, which is uh, translated that we um, took pleasure in, in, in partaking of the feast of that wicked person. Was he a Russia or just a T-Page? That's a machlekes in the he Gemara. Good Russia. question. In the Gemara, there are... was the villain. Well, there, there could be, no, there could be two. But that's an excellent question. In the Gemara, there is a, there's a debate. One says that Melech Russia Hoya, and he says that he was a greater Russia even than Haman. The other says Melech T-Page Hoya, that he was a fool. Um, so I, I'm not going to weigh in on that. But he definitely wasn't a good guy. I mean, he wasn't our friend. That's for sure. I mean, he was willing he to have the... He was not a sad. He was not a sad. He was obviously a very immoral and very evil person. I mean, it's pretty clear from the story of the Megillah. Um, so, the, so here, so the Gemara asks the question, why were we deserving of such a terrible decree? And give the answer, because we went to Ahasuerus' party, we took pleasure in partaking of Ahasuerus' party. Now that's, although the Gemara answers that, that, that answer itself requires a lot of explanation. Because even if we went to Ahasuerus' party, why is that worthy of this such a grave penalty of the annihilation of the entire Jewish people? We drank his wine. So if we drank his wine. It was a symbol of assimilation. Okay, so there's, there's, but there's, a lot of, there's a lot of bad things going on, but, you know, to be, to, to, uh, even for one person to get the death penalty in Torah is a tremendously difficult thing. For a nation, men, women, children, entire nation, so they went to the party. Okay, I mean, so they, it was their assimilation, there was wine, a lot of different things, but there's something got to be more than all that to, to um, be able to bring about such a terrible decree. And of course, this is something that's discussed and explained in different ways. In one of the very foundational and beautiful sikhs of the Rebbe, he explains a very powerful idea. And he says like this, he says, the truth of the matter is, it wasn't really a punishment, per se. It was something else. Which is, and, and he, the Rebbe zooms in on the one word of that statement of the Gemara. It doesn't say that they went to the party. It doesn't say they ate from the party. They enjoyed the party. It says they enjoyed. Nehenu. Now, What's so bad about enjoying a party? No. Okay, so it's a bad party. Okay, but what's so terrible? They got a buzz off of it. So, so the Rebbe explains the following. He says, 
it has nothing to do with the party or the food of the party. It has to do with where did we place our trust? Where did we think our protection was coming from? Mm -hmm. The Jewish people of the time were very, very happy to be invited but to the party. You know why? Because now we have a good lobby in the, I don't know what color the White House was in Shushan, but we're, we're good. We have, we're friends. We're friends with the king. Blue and purple. So, okay. So we're friends with the king. We have protection. So the Yidden were very happy that they went to the party. So what were they really doing? They were saying, we have a protector. We have a shield. We have someone who's looking out for us and we're, we're good. We're safe. So Hashem says, oh, he's your protector? Fine. Let's see how this plays out. In other words, and the Rebbe says, it's not, Hashem didn't say, okay, you did that, I'm going to punish you. He says, oh, you, is this what you're choosing as your protector? So then, let's see what happens when he's your protector. And here we have the very famous metaphor where it says that Kalal Yisrael is compared to one sheep. Kivsa achas, one sheep, ben shivim ze'evim among 70 wolves. The 70 nations of the world are compared to wolves. And Klal Yisrael is a sheep. A sheep with 70 wolves is not safe. But, Godol Haro'e, great is the shepherd who guards the sheep from the wolves. That works until the sheep says, I want one of the wolves to be my shepherd instead. I like this shepherd. I think this shepherd is a wonderful wolf. Then, the sheep takes itself or herself out of the protection of the shepherd who protects it every day and says, okay, my protection is in this wolf. So when Kalal Yisrael said that even though Mordechai Asadik says not to go to the party, even though this party was really a celebration of the destruction of the Holy Temple, and I'm not going to go through this, I think last year we went through the whole, the 70 years and how this party was really a celebration in the mind of Ahasuerus of the fact that the promise of redemption wasn't happening. And the Jews are, are in his mind, going to stay in Golos indefinitely. Um, so this party had nothing to do with Hashem, and had nothing to do with holiness, and nothing to do with Mordechai, nothing to do with Kedusha. If the Jewish people say, this is where our protection lies, so Hashem says, fine, let's see what happens. And what happens is that very soon we find ourselves in a threat of total annihilation. This is why the, this it seems like this is why the Megillah is as important as the whole Chumash. This is, this is the lesson. This is the story of, of what we are, of our existence. So, so really what it's about, the, the most important concept here is the following. There's something called nature. We're part of nature on the one hand. We're human beings and we live in a world of nature. And in fact, we're meant to do what we have to do naturally to protect ourselves, to take care of ourselves, to uh, support ourselves. We're meant to work with the laws of nature. But we're meant to know that the laws of nature are merely a vehicle for Hashem. When, as soon as we transplant, as soon as we say, you know, nature will take care of me. Nature is the answer. You know, if I work, if I get a good degree, I'll have a parnasa for sure, because I'm going to do it naturally. 
As soon as nature becomes our protector, that's when we're in very big trouble. Because that's when we're disconnecting ourselves to what's really the source of our protection and our bracha. So says the Rebbe, if the Jews would have felt a necessity to go to the party, because the king invited you to the party, so you have to go show your face. Okay. You go to the Rav, you ask him a heter, is it okay to show your face? It's okay. But Nehenu, they enjoyed means they weren't to go show their face. They felt this is the answer. This is our protection. Our, our salvation lies in a good king, in a good president, in a good lobby, in a good this. That's where our safety lies. As soon as we forget where our safety really lies and where it's coming from, then we're in very deep trouble. That's what happened. And that's why there was such a terrible decree, not because Hashem was punishing us. It was the natural... Hashem sort of let the natural course of things run its course. Like natural it's, a, it's a consequence. It's not a punishment. Mm-hmm. Hashem says, oh, Hashverish is the one taking care of you. Sure, no problem. I'll take a nap. Mm-hmm. Now I'm saying that you think I'm joking when I say I'll take a nap. Mm-hmm. We'll see soon in the Megillah where Hashem wakes up from his nap. So Hashem says, I'm taking a nap and after all, you find yourself a good protector, right? Ahashverosh, he'll take care of you. Sure. Very quickly, Ahasuerus has a minister, the minister is an anti-Semite, he gives Ahasuerus 10,000 silver pieces, whatever, he offers it, sure, the end of the Jewish people. Because we put our trust in the wrong place. But it didn't stay that way. What turned the tide? What made it turn around? They did shuva. Where do we see that they did shuva for this specific um, mistake, for this specific sin. So here, and, and this is a famous idea from the Rebbe, but so powerful. He says, we see in the story of the Megillah where the Yidden really got the message. When was that? Okay, decree comes out, the Jewish people are going to be annihilated. What would be the first natural recourse? What do we do? Okay, pull strings. Now, we have some pretty good strings to pull. The queen is Jewish. And Mordechai, who is the greatest rabbi of the time, happens to be a minister of the king. That's a pretty good lobby. So let, let's get, you know, let, let's work on things. So let's, he was a minister before what happened with, yes. uh, with the dreams? Yes. Well, you know, when exactly did he become... I, I'm not, I don't remember right now, but, but definitely, possibly, but definitely before the decrees came out. So now that the decrees are coming out, you would think step number one is let's get Mordechai to step up the pressure in the cabinet or wherever, Senate, wherever it is. Let's get Esther. She's going to work from inside and together we'll work this out. What do they do? So Mordechai puts on sackcloth and ashes. Now, sackcloth and ashes, the first thing, the first thing he's making sure is that he can't go to the, to the palace. As the Megillah says explicitly, You can't come into the palace wearing sackcloth and ashes. So the first thing he does is he dresses himself in a way where he can't be of any help anymore. And what does he do? He gathers, Klal Yisrael, he says, he says according to one writer, he gathered 22,000 children. And he learned with them Torah. And he starts fasting. And he has people fast. And he's crying. And he's davening. He's doing tshuva. What happened with, you know, being smart about this? Go to the cabin. He waits up Hashem. So he doesn't do it. Right. So, he, 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 so basically what Mordechai is doing, he's saying, 
let's not make the same mistake twice. The mistake that got us into all of this is that we placed our trust in nature and in the king and so on. Let's not make the same mistake by going back to the king and trying to work through nature. It's not working. Who else does exactly the same thing? Esther. Because Esther is the best card that we have. That's the queen. Now, Esther didn't win over Ahasuerus' heart um, by being a tzaddikis, by saying to Hillam, right? Ahasuerus loved Esther for her beauty. So what does Esther do when she wants to go visit, go to Ahasuerus to plead for the Jewish people? She fasts for three days. That's not typically a beauty tip. So she, the queen, I'm sorry? Oh, losing weight, right? So the, so, so I, don't, I still don't think fasting for three days is the answer. So, so she's, she's going to go win over Ahasuerus' heart by fasting, by davening. So what did both Esther and Ahasuerus, what did they express through their actions? The exact tshuva of what the sin was all about. The sin was putting our trust in the natural course of things. The king will take care of us. The palace will take care of us. We'll be best friends. We'll be goody-goody. We'll go to the ball of the king. That's how things will work out. That's what got us into trouble. And when trouble hit full force, that's when Mordechai tells the Jewish people, it's time to wake up. And we have to now, excuse me, we have to recognize that our salvation and our protection doesn't lie with the king and not with the palace and not with Haman and not with the strings that we might pull and not with the beauty that we might have. None of that is going to make a difference. We have to get Hashem back on our team. We have to daven. We have to do tshuva. We have to fast. Once Hashem is on our side, then you can go to the king after a three-day fast. It doesn't matter. You know, once, once everything is in place, once you take care of the root of the problem, then it's technicalities, how to take care of Ahasuerus, as it was. And that brought about the miracle. And how did the miracle come about? Fully in nature. And that fits in sync with the whole story. The whole story is, is nature a separate entity? Or is nature only Hashem's arm? So the initial sin was, we believed in nature as its own entity. The tshuva was, that we said, forget about the natural way. We have to do tshuva, connect to Hashem. And where did the salvation come from? Nature. And that's why this salvation comes from nature more than any other salvation that we have. Pesach wasn't a natural salvation. As I said earlier, neither was Shavuos, neither was Sukkot, neither was Hanukkah. Because this specifically, the whole story of the Megillah is the story of nature. Good or bad. What is nature? And so at every step of the way, again, the sin, the tshuva, and the salvation were all about understanding what nature is. What is this concept called nature? The sin was when we placed our emphasis and our hope, um, our trust in nature. That was our sin. That caused that nature said, you're finished. We, you placed, we placed our hope in nature as its own entity. Naturally, we were doomed. The tshuva was that we discarded nature. 
We said we're not going to do this in a natural way. We're going to put our trust in Hashem. We're going to daven. We're going to tshuva. We're going to fast. And, we're, we're, and that's how we're going to take care of this. That's how they did tshuva. And therefore the Yeshua, the salvation came in nature. Because Hashem says, what is nature? Nature is my costume. We've discussed earlier, what's the Hebrew word for nature? Teva. teva. What's another meaning or another usage of the word teva in the Torah, which we say in davening? Tubu biyamsuf. Tubu is to be, to, tubu is to be drowned, to, to, be, to be sunk in. It says that the Egyptians fell into the sea. Tubu, they were covered over by, by the yamsuf. So nature is Hashem covered over. As long as we always remember that nature is only about Hashem being covered over, then we're fine. Because the nature never becomes the address. Nature never becomes the one that we're hoping to or, or working on or trusting in. It's merely a vehicle. And as long as it's a vehicle, we're good. Because nature is on Hashem's side. So our salvation of Purim, Hashem said, I don't have to break nature to save you. For me to break nature to save you is against the story of Purim, says Hashem. You understand? The whole story is about the fact that I pull the cords of nature. That was your mistake in the first place in the beginning of the Megillah. And that's when nature really didn't work out for you. When you did Shuvah and you realized it's not about nature, it's about me, then I'll save you through nature. So the, really the, the most important concept in the entire Megillah beginning to end is that nature is Hashem's vehicle. And that's why if Hashem were to perform some supernatural miracle and, and uh, Haman would just fly up into the air and disappear and whatever, something like the 10 plagues would be visited on Ahasuerus, that, that would be antithetical to the story of Purim. To the lesson. To the lesson of Purim and the story of Purim. The story of Purim. And that's why who is the, who is the queen of the story of Purim? is Esther. What does the word Esther mean in Hebrew? Hiddenness. Hiddenness. That Hashem is hidden. And what's it called? Megillas Esther. What does the word Megillah mean? Legalot is to reveal. Megillas Esther is to reveal that which is hidden. And that's the whole story of Purim. The whole story of Purim is Megillas Esther. That which is Hester. That which is concealed. That's which we sometimes... Don't see. We don't notice it. It's, it's, you know, it just happened. It's nature. It's Hashem there. And the story of Purim forced us to the recognition, the realization, that nature is not its own entity. And again, sorry for the repetitiousness, that if we put our hope and trust in that nature, that won't have a good ending. As soon as we recognize what's beyond the nature, what's behind it, then nature itself will be our best friend because nature is merely Hashem's workings through that nature. Historically, does Megillus Esther tell what happened historically during that time accurately? To the best of my knowledge? <laughs> you mean like from Persian history picture? Yeah. They, they have things in, in uh, per, they have things for Mordechai and Esther in, in Yeah, I mean, there definitely is. Again, I can't answer that question knowledgeably. I don't know much of Persian history. I know my history from the Megillah, so I, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I assume so, but I can't answer that question uh, more knowledgeably. Rabbi Silverberg, isn't it true that um, 
that when Esther went to Achashverosh after three days of fasting, really she wasn't supposed to, you're not supposed to go to the king unless you're called to, to the king, right? Esther says that. Right, and then so she, when she went, he was about to, to um, um, I don't know if it was not to kill her or anything, but he mm -hmm. was angry at her. He was going to be angry at her, and then Hashem made it switch. Mm -hmm. To to um, that I'll give you half of my of what I have my countries that I have. So it's like I felt like over there there was a miracle. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's many midrashim that tell us about things that were happening behind the scenes. Right. But for a person who's standing there and watching the story, you don't see all of that. It's like so many things that happen that are miracles, but they happen so seamlessly that it doesn't seem like a miracle. Right? You're, 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 there's a child running into the street and a car happens to pull over to the other side. Was that a miracle or not? Well, I know. He just happened not to see. He happened to move the other side. The child happened to trip and the car went over. I mean, so many things happened to happen. So, of course, a Yid knows, no, there's a reason why that was pushed this way and, then, and a Malach came and pushed that car that way and that child this way. But for the person standing on the side who's very into their nature, nothing, nothing really happened. You know, just... So, of course, so many things happen that's Hashem's direct interfering, and yet, in so many ways and times, it could come in the guise of something natural. And that's the story of Purim. You know, when it comes to Hanukkah and the, the oil lasted for eight days, that's supernatural. It's not, you don't need a medrash to tell us, it just oil can't last for eight days. But in the story of the Megillah, read from beginning to end, one is not forced, so to speak, to see Hashem's hand in it. And yet, that is exactly the beauty of the Megillah, that the whole story is telling us that Hashem's hand is in everything that happens. Mm -hmm. See, I guess like for us, we can look at the story and say, oh, what do you mean? This is such a shkafa pratis. This is such for a shkafa sure. pratis, right? And that's how we look at everything. Right, and then I think that it's a lesson for us in our lives that like, if our grandparents could talk to us from heaven and say, you know, this is hashgacha practice, this is what has happened, this is, <laughs> like, sometimes we don't always see it in our own lives. I feel like it's a message from the Megillah. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And it's good to train ourselves to see the hashgacha practice in our life. Because the truth is, there's so much hashgacha practice. And we just have to stop and think about it. To stop and think about it and, and recognize how things happen and come together. And it's just, it's just amazing. Mm -hmm. um, but we have to stop and think. We have to stop and reflect. Mm -hmm. But really, if we do think, I think every person can write a book. Mm -hmm. about the, just their own Hashkacha Pratis stories mm -hmm. of how A led to B and B led to C and who would have believed and where that comes from and that's Hashem orchestrating everything. Mm -hmm. So, which leads us to another idea. Um, and that is, there's an interesting Zohar, and really it's based on a medrash, that says, whenever in the Megillah it says Hamelech, who does it mean? Hashem. So it, it means, right, it, so the Zohar says it means Hashem. Now, of course, it also means Pshat. It's a story. We have a, we have a general rule of Ein Mikra Yotze Midei Pshuto, which means that a, whatever it says in the Pasuk means literally that's what happened. There was a physical human king, Achashverosh, and he did A, B, C, and everything that it says in the Megillah happened in the way it says it. And yet... Here we have the Medrash telling us that, no, you can read the Megillah in a totally different way, and whenever you read the word Hamelech, like, interpose there, <laughs> pretend it says Hashem, and the Megillah will make sense also. And that's really odd. I mean, it would be difficult for us to actually sit down and try to understand the whole story, understand how Hashem is doing every part of the story. You have to understand a lot of deep stuff to understand what's going on and how Hashem is doing it. 
But without getting into um, without getting into details, what's the idea behind that concept? That although yes, there was a non-Jewish, immoral, foolish, wicked king who was acting in this world and doing things, everything that he does, that he did, was really only a vehicle for what Hashem wanted to be done at that moment. He didn't know that. He was a fool or wicked. He didn't know that he was just playing out um, a, 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 a part that Hashem had him doing. He was a puppet. He was a puppet. So really when the Zohar tells us, whenever it says HaMalach, it means Hashem. What it really means is, yes, there was a physical king, and yes, he was a Russia, but he was doing exactly what Hashem wanted to be done at that moment. He was a vehicle or a puppet to fulfill what Hashem wanted. And that's really what we're talking about here. That that's what nature is. Nature is a vehicle of Hashem, as a Hashverosh was. Goyim don't have Bechira. So without Bechira. With, yeah, right. He didn't need, he didn't need he didn't Bechira for it. He didn't have free choice to do those things. Did Hashem take away his free choice? So, okay, so it, it goes into a different conversation of free choice that I don't want to go all the way there. But specifically about kings, it says, Lev melachim v'sarim b'yad Hashem. Even more so than everyone, that whatever, whatever anyone does is really playing out Hashem's will. When it comes to kings who are rulers and leaders, they're specifically the ones through whom Hashem is leading and ruling in that particular place. So therefore, Ahasuerus is actually serving what he has to do. And with this concept, we are able to understand a number of different psukim in the Megillah. Let me mention two examples. The Pasuk says, um, by... Uh, they're talking, it's the king's party. This Ahasuerus knew at a party, by the way. And he threw a party for six months. I was discussing that tonight by our supper table. A six-month party? Like How do you do that? A wedding in New York. <laughs> a wedding in New York is six hours. Yeah. This is six months. <laughs> I, I don't even know how it's possible. But my daughter was saying teenagers, it's okay. Okay, I don't, I don't know. But... Um, exhausted. <laughs> Coffee <laughs> urns flowed. <laughs> So the what did you say? Without a fridge. <laughs> point, point, is, point is, it says, slaves doing everything for them. Good point. So Not it says, It was on the seventh day, and the king's heart was good, you know, very happy with wine and whatever, seventh day. This was in the seven-day party that was after the six-month party, right? <laughs> so now, seventh day, the king is happy, whatever, he calls for Vashti. That's the story. That's the storyline of the Megillah, right? So there's an interesting statement in the Gemara, where one of the Talmudic sages, Rava, says, "On the seventh day, the king's heart." Uh, on the seventh day, the king's heart was gladdened with wine. And until this day, he wasn't happy. Like what happened? on this day he, he was happy what happened until this point so the Gemara says Rav, I'm, I'm okay. so Rava says because the seventh day is Shabbos so, okay. Okay. so it says the seventh day is Shabbos and on Shabbos the king was happy because because he saw the difference between how the how the Goyim we're celebrating in that party and how Jews celebrate on Shabbos. Because on Shabbos we also drink wine and we also have a feast and we also have a meal. And yet, we say, and it's spiritual and it's meaningful. And here they were just partying. 
Well, so it seems from that Gemara, it seems that not. It seems they went home. That they weren't there on that day. That's what it seems. Wait, which part of Megillah is this? The first, first chapter. Very first. Right in the beginning. It's on that day where Yachashoyosh is going to call for Vashti, and she's not going to come, and she's going to be put to death. So again, the Gemara, again, the Gemara says, on the seventh day, the king was happy. Why the seventh day? He was happy the whole time. But on the seventh day was Shabbos. And when he saw the difference between the Jewish people celebrating on Shabbos and the non-Jewish people celebrating in the party, so his heart was gladdened. But he didn't see that in the six months? They weren't invited at the six months, were they? It's just the end? Interesting question. You know what? I'm, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to try to guess the answer to that question right now. That's what it's B'yoyim Okay. Now, so the question is, which king are we talking about? Mm-hmm. Who was happy because the Jewish people were keeping Shabbos? Yeah, Because right? if you read the part, the Pasuk is talking about Ahasuerus. Mm-hmm. It says on the seventh day, he was in a good mood and he called for Vashti and she wouldn't come and she had... So, but the Gemara like moves straight off into Hashem and says, on the seventh day, the king was happy because he saw the difference between Jews and non-Jews keeping Shabbos. That's got to be talking about Hashem. But the Pasuk is talking about Ahasuerus. So how does, how does, does A connect to B? So here we have the same idea. Of course, the king who was happy about Shabbos was Hashem. But because Hashem was happy about Shabbos, that translated into Ahasuerus calling for Vashti and having her killed ultimately. Let's remember, the Medrash tells us why was Vashti deserving of being killed? She was a terribly wicked person. Right? She was a daughter of a wicked person and a granddaughter of a wicked person. She's a granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar, destroyed the base of But she herself wasn't a tzaddik. Right? It says specifically what was she, um, what, what would she do? She, she had the Jewish maid servants work on Shabbos. So, so it was on Shabbos that Ahasuerosh has her killed. By the way, who's the one who gives the idea to kill, to have her killed? Haman. Haman, another one of our good friends, right? Who ultimately is going to be killed because of Esther. It's the whole story is like this. But but so so here we have a, a, an example in the Megillah how we're reading one verse and there's really different meanings to the same verse, but one meaning is really playing out the other. So it's on the seventh day, and Hashem sees the beauty of the Jewish people. And therefore, Hashem feels the love for the Jewish people because he sees the difference of how a Yid celebrates and how Ahasuerus' people celebrate. And therefore, Hashem sets into motion already the downfall of Haman. Who really sets into motion the downfall of Haman? Haman. In other words, Haman gives the advice to have Vashti killed, who's going to have Esther instated, who's going to have Haman killed. And this is how evil works against itself. Was that clear? Mm-hmm. So this is all starting from Hashem, like everything in the story of the Megillah, where it's a beautiful story, but you have to understand what's behind the scenes. And that's Hashem. Okay? Another idea. Fascinating idea. The, um, let's go on with that same, the same storyline of Vashti. Um, so Vashti disobeys the king. She says, I'm not coming. What does the king do? Calls a meeting, board meeting. Who does he call? Seven ministers. Seven ministers of the land. Um, I want to discuss with you, what do I do with Vashti? And um, so here in one of the, the sikhs, the rabbi asks, the king didn't know what the law is if someone rebels the king? Send somebody over to get her. Like, he did. He, he did. She said she's not coming. Just grab her anyway. She was strong. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. But the point is, 
especially in the olden days, a person disobeys the king, there's a question what's done to the king. Let's think about it. Later in the Megillah, when Mordechai tells Esther to go to the king, what does Esther tell? She says, I wasn't called to come to the king. If I show up without being called, I'll be killed. Right? She's the queen too. But if the queen shows up without being called, she'll be killed. So here she was called. She said, no. Is there a question? What should be done with her? Good question. Furthermore, when he asks them, when he asks the ministers, he asks the ministers, okay, what do I do with her? So Memuchan, who's Haman, according to most, says, okay, you should have her put to death. Why? What did he say? Because all the wives won't respect their husbands, etc. That's why? Because she rebelled from the king. He, like, it's almost, how could Haman say that to the king? The fact that she rebelled in you, big deal. But, you know, my wife's not going to listen to me. <laughs> now this is big. Wait, so what's going on? The queen rebels in the king. And no one says anything about that. And the king is not sure, you know, what should we do? And finally they put her to death because maybe, you know, Chaim's wife is going to misbehave. Okay, now she's put to death. The whole story is really odd. So the Rebbe discusses this in a sikh, he asks the question, it's really, it's a pshat question in the Megillah, what does it mean? And he says a beautiful answer, he says like this, the Pasuk says earlier about the party, the king's party, it says, um, Vashtia kadas ein ones, literally, that there was plenty of wine, but nobody was forced to drink anything. And you drank what you wanted as much as you wanted. Why? Pasuk says, Ki yisad hamelech, I'll call Rav Beso. The king established for all the people in charge of the party, Lasos Kirtson Ishvaish. In this party, full, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's up to you. You want to drink, you want to eat, you want to have a good time. Whatever you want to do, full Bahira in this party. You can do whatever you want. That was a foundational rule about the king's party. This party is made where everyone has the right freedom of expression, freedom of choice to do whatever you want. Ah, if so, when Vashti said, I don't want to come, she was really acting within party party rules. The king said that in this party, no one's forced to do what they don't want. King said that. About drinking the wine, no, but 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 call Rav Beso. Rashi says it wasn't just about the Rav wine, means the man. I'll call Rav on all the leaders of this party. That was the general rule for anything in relation to this party that everyone's invited and everyone can do whatever they want. No, you know, normally you come to the king's house, they come to the palace, there's certain rules, how decorum, how you act, what you do, how not in this party. This party was up to you, says the Rebbe, being that the king made this party and he found this, this party was founded on that golden rule of it's up to you. So Vavashi says, I'm not coming. So, you know, go do me something. Uh, party rules. I don't have to come. And she's a smart lady. And Ahasuerus didn't know what to do. How do I take care of this one? Because I said you can do whatever you want. So he calls his seven advisors. And Haman is also a smart guy. Evil people are not necessarily stupid. So, so Haman says, um, you're right. Party rules is party rules. She can't be put to death and not listen to the king. But there's another issue we have to deal with. You know, this can create a scandal in the whole town, the whole country. It's just a, it's a more of a social issue. We have to set this right. Oh, okay, fine, have her killed. But not because she rebelled against the king. It's just because what she did is just not going to go over well for all the other houses. That's the story. That's the pshat in the story of the Megillah. 
Question is, why is this such an important party rule? I mean, it's a nice idea, but why was this so, why was this the golden rule of that party? That, that in this party, everyone does exactly what they want. No one's forcing you to do anything. Why? Why was that so? He wants them to enjoy themselves. Okay. Okay, but you have to, <laughs> to enjoy yourself. That has to be the rule that everyone can do whatever they want. You can, the, the king can throw a grand party and grand feast and invite everyone and everyone's having a good time. This is a very interesting type of rule to instate as the, as the basic foundational rule of the party. Says the Rebbe, that here we have another example of how the whole story that was going on was merely a guise for, or, or disguise for something much deeper that was happening. And, and, and here it goes. In the last chapter of the Megillah, there's a quote there. It says, Kimu v'kiblu ha-Yehudim. The Jewish people were Mekayim. Mekayim means to fulfill, and they were Mekabel. They accepted on themselves, on their children, etc., etc. And the Gemara famously says that during, in the story of Purim, is when the acceptance of the giving of the Torah became cemented, became concrete. The story of Purim is a thousand years after Matan Torah, almost a thousand, very close to a thousand years after the giving of Torah. And here the Gemara says that until the story of Purim, the acceptance of Matan Torah was incomplete. Why? Because by Matan Torah, when Hashem gave us the Torah, He didn't give us choices. He told us, He took the mountain, the Gemara says, put it over our heads and says, oh, by the way, do you people want to accept the Torah? The big mountain over your head, just uh, pointing that out. He says, if you don't accept the Torah, the mountain comes down on top of you. Meaning, when we accepted the Torah, we had no choice in the matter. And the Gemara says that although it's fine, we accepted the Torah, but being that we were pushed into it against our will, at the end of the day, a person is never fully accountable for something that they're forced to do. Because it wasn't Bechir It wasn't Bechir It was only a thousand years later in the story of Purim. When here, nobody's forcing us to keep the Torah. To the contrary, we have the death decree hanging all over all of our heads if we keep the Torah. Because if the Jewish people would have opted out conversion, no decree. And yet the entire Jewish people stood strong behind Mordechai, behind Esther, and says, we're in. When they did Shuvah. When they did Shuvah. So says... they opted... True, true. But when they did Shuvah, says the Gemara, that when they accepted and did shuva and accepted the Torah in the time of Ahasuerus and, and, and Mordechai and Esther, and that was the entire Jewish people, that's when really the acceptance of Matan Torah happened. And that's one of the great, one of the greatnesses, we, we started off tonight, how many unique and great things there are about Purim. One of the great unique points of Purim is that that's considered the acceptance of Torah. It really is the completion of Matan Torah. Says the Rebbe, now let's go back to Ahasuerus' party. Let's remember, Ahasuerus represents Hashem throughout the Megillah. Ahasuerus said, this party, the story of Purim, is Kirtzon Ish Vaish. In this generation, everyone is going to have the full Bechira, the full choice, the freedom of choice, to make their decision. And it started out in the, in the disguise of a party, but that was the story of Purim where we were able to make the decision of our acceptance of Hashem. Nobody's pushing us. Nobody's telling us what to do. And that was the, the greatness of that day. When we did that shuvah, we accepted Hashem, even though we weren't in any way being forced to accept. That's what brought about the tremendousness 
of the story of Purim and the tremendous simcha of the story of Purim. So really, to, to, just to, um, to summarize the two main points that we talk about here tonight, two of the great ideas of Purim. One is that the whole story of Purim is the story of under, seeing Hashem behind the disguise of nature. And that was their sin, and that was their tshuva, and that was the Yeshua, was all using Teva, was all within nature. And that's why Ahasuerus throughout the Megillah is really only playing out his role in what Hashem wants from him in the Megillah. And secondly, that, it's, that nature is something that gives us the choices. It doesn't tell us you have to believe, just like nature. What's the difference between a miracle and nature? And miracles, miracles, in a sense, force us to see godliness. Because what are you going to do? There's 10 plagues. What else are you going to say? Nature doesn't force us. Nature says, God, where's God? When we have natural occurrences, and most of our life is nature, in nature it becomes up to us, how are we going to see it? Are we going to see it as something separate? Or are we going to see it as the hand of Hashem? And therefore Purim, which is the yomtiv of nature, is the yomtiv of choice is the yomtiv of freedom of choice, where it's up to us to see things through the, through, the, um, through, through the sight, through the way of seeing the way a Yid sees things. That even though the same story, someone else could look at it and say, Hashem's name is not even there. And a Yid says, Hashem's name is not even there. Every word is Hashem. Every Hamelech is Hashem. Every part of the story is Hashem. And that's how a Yid looks at it. And when a Yid looks at the world and he sees Hashem in every step of the world, that's the reason for the greatest simcha possible. And that's why Purim is the greatest simcha. Because it's not just that Hashem is in holy times or in holy places or in miraculous situations. In every day, in every step, in every seemingly random and regular act, we recognize Hashem is right there with me. That brings the year to the simcha without any boundaries, which is really what the simcha of Purim is all about, the tremendous simcha. And to be able to take from that simcha throughout the year, that in every day, as natural and regular as it seems, he is able to see beyond it and see Hashem in every part of our life. And that's part of the, or at least one point of the story in Purim. We're keeping that Yom by Mashiach. Yes, 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 yes. The Pasuk says, lo Yosuf Mizaram, that this Yom will never be forgotten from the Jewish people. It doesn't say that, doesn't, it does not say that about any other Yom that we have. Yes. This one and Hanukkah, or this even more than Hanukkah? This more than Hanukkah. Your 